Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for your word. Uh, we pray that your word would humble us, teach us, instruct us um, to see you for who you are. Your goodness, your plan, your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I'm a little upset when, I, when, we were, when the air wasn't working because I was going to class it up with a, a summer jacket tonight. Um, but that wouldn't work because I would only make it 10 minutes in the sermon. I'd be on the floor. Um, but I want to also say um, thank you to Noah um, for being vulnerable and uh, for being willing to share. I'm glad you rambled. Thank you. Um, it takes a lot of courage to do that, and it's a huge encouragement to us, man. Um, so thank you for that. So I was th- sitting there this week looking at our sermon, uh, looking at the text, looking at the title of our sermon. I thought something that, I, that hadn't occurred to me. Uh, the, the title of our sermon series is Who You Are. And I thought, how countercultural of a statement is that? It, it, because what it implies is this. You're going to come here. You're going to listen to First Peter. We're going to work through this whole series on who you are. Not who you think you are, who you want to be, or who you want to manufacture yourself to be, but who you are, who you've designed to be who you've been designed to look like, the mission, the purpose, all the things that God has wired in you. You know, one of the things that we've seen in this letter very clearly is that God has uniquely uh, gifted each of us. That's true. We are different people. Every one of us in this room, different passions, different gifts, different skills. But we've seen very clearly that Peter is saying that believer, Christian, you are designed You've been designed uniquely. You've been called to something. You have a mission. And it's not for you to decide whether or not you want to accept it. It's been given to you. See, if if we're trying to be more culturally sensitive with a title, it'd be like, um, who who am I? Question mark, right? Because that's kind of how our culture views identity. Identity is about you discovering who you are. It's not about someone telling you who you are though Peter in his letter would say that actually that's what we're seeking to discover is who God has called us to be. But culturally, it's like, I want to discover and figure out who I am. So I, I thought about my life and, and who, for my life, and I was trying to figure out who am I for so much of my life. And I remember when I was a kid, I was a skateboarder, you know? And uh, that was fun until I realized that when I was a kid, inline skating was way cooler than skateboarding. So I became an aggressive inliner. Not like, you know, like on the street, like that's coming back. People are doing that now. Some of you probably are like skating all around, but you don't have brakes. You know, you're grinding. I was doing all types of crazy moves. I actually got in trouble one time in school. I switched to a Christian school. My first time going uh, to like a a real Christian school. And so I did this like chart. I did a crossword puzzle on uh, the names of skateboarding moves. And I didn't realize when I was a kid that the names are like very offensive um, and not like acceptable for a fifth grader. I didn't know what they meant. So I just put them in there and they called my parents in the office and they're like, what's, what's wrong with your son? He's like really messed up. And he's like, oh, he doesn't know, just skateboarding moves or inline, aggressive inlining moves. So I did that. I wore soaps, you know. I don't know if you guys remember those, shoes with grind plates in the middle. So in case you're walking around school and you want to grind, you could do it. So, I, you know, I did it. And then after I was a skateboarder, I became an athlete and you know, I found my identity in being an athlete. And uh, that's who I thought I was. And then uh, near the end of high school, I also said, you know, I also like being a class clown. I don't know if you guys noticed that. If you know me, you could probably never imagine that. Um, But I liked not taking anything seriously except for making people laugh. 
And uh, so that's kind of who I became. And I went to college, and this is so funny, and I'm willing to share this. When I came to college, I thought, like, it would be really cool to get into film. And you know somebody's into film when they don't call it movies. Let's go watch a film, you know? It's like a pipe and a scotch, you know? So I was like, I got into film, you know? And uh, it's, it's true, right? We have these kind of trends that we kind of fall into, and we want to see if, like, that's who we are. It's like how everybody now is a photographer, right? Have you noticed that? You go to Wynwood, and you walk around every single corner, and somebody has a $500-plus camera. They're trying to take an artsy picture. It's like everyone thinks they're a photographer. Side note, I like pretending I'm a photographer. But here's the thing. We're, we're, we all have different passions. We're unique. We're gifted differently. We're skilled differently. But Peter is going to say, and in this letter, and I think other places in Scripture, it's very clear that we have been called to something, that actually there's a part deep down beneath all the uniqueness. There's something in there that is true of every single one of us. There are traits. There, there's a mission. There's a calling. There's a purpose that we've been called to live out, and he's kind of bringing that to a close here at this section in his letter. So let's break that down. Look at it with me. Here's what it says in, in, in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. We've talked a lot about how words really matter. So when you read the Bible, the words really matter. So why is he saying finally? So he's saying finally here because he's wanting you as the reader, the audience, to acknowledge he's capping something off. He's finishing a section here. So in light of everything you've read before, so quick recap, very first chapter, you have been chosen by God, you've been forgiven, you've been ransomed, God has changed and born you, brought about in you this belief that you've set your mind on, you have a living hope, imperishable, unfading, unending inheritance promise for you. Believer, that is your calling, that is the path that you're walking down, and with that in mind, with the gospel rooted there, your living hope set with your mind on, you begin to walk out and you begin to look at your conduct. So he's been talking about that, that your conduct matters because it shows God in the way that you act. So he talked about government, and he talked about submitting and respecting and honoring the government. Then he talked about submitting and honoring and respecting those who rule over you in the workplace. And then he talked about last week, submitting and honoring and respect in the marriage. And he's saying, finally, in light of all of that, here are the baseline traits that you need to have indwelled and, and growing in your life for those things to be accomplished. So here's what he says, his unity of mind which in the Greek just means he's saying that you're to have harmony of thoughts and attitudes. So he, remember, he's talking to a whole bunch of churches all around Asia Minor. So he's saying, churches, you're to have unity, harmony of thought and of attitude. And you're thinking to yourself, man, I, I mean, I know little about the church, but I know the church maybe is not harmonious I mean, it seems very fractured. So many different interpretations of the Bible, so many different theological positions. I mean, I could choose five different churches to go to today, and I guarantee you every single one will feel very, very different. So how do you have harmony with so much disparity amongst the church? You see, remember, he's in the context, he's saying, finally have unity of mind. So what he's assuming here is that every person he's talking to, regardless of the differences in the churches, they all believe on the things that he just said. So they all believe in the gospel. 
that God has chosen and forgiven and ransomed them, that it's by his grace that they've been saved, and they believe that God has called them to respect and to honor even people that seemingly don't deserve it, whether they're government leaders in your workplace, even in your marriage. So he's saying, as the church, you're going to have disparity, you're going to have differences, and I actually think differences in the church is a beautiful thing because the kingdom of God is a diverse kingdom, so it's expected that we would have you know, diverse churches. I think that's okay. I think that's beautiful. I think it's a good thing. But we should be able to be harmonious, to come together in seeking to be compassionate and loving and respectful and honoring and submitting and obeying and loving people that are difficult to love. That's where we should be aligned, assuming that we all believe the gospel. So he's saying, churches, unite on that. And then he says, show brotherly love. Right before that, he says, have sympathy and a tender heart. Um, Those two things actually go together. He puts brotherly love in the middle, but sympathy and tender heart go together because it's the same adjective. It's, It's two different words, two different adjectives describing compassion. So what he's saying is, you are to have compassion of mind, sympathy, meaning you are to listen. <laughs> Isn't that applicable currently? You're to listen to people. Maybe you don't understand. Well, seek, Christian, to understand, to have sympathy, to try to wrap your mind around something that is hard for you to grapple with. Don't be judgmental. Don't rush to assumption. Have compassion of your mind and then have a tender heart. Compassion that flows out, that motivates you to do something, to meet needs, to sacrifice, to be generous. And then he says, show brotherly love. So he's saying, compassion does what? Compassion is to anyone and everyone. You can have compassion of mind and compassion of heart to every single person that you encounter. But he gets very specific. He says, but you're also to have brotherly love, which means in this place, in the church. Brotherly love talks about family love. The, the church is called a family, which means you're supposed to love your family, have brotherly love within the church. You know, one of the things that we do here that you guys probably uh, think is really awkward, and maybe that's why some of you show up very late because you want to skip this part, is the passing of the peace, right? It's like you can see some people like, all right, now go around and talk to somebody you don't know. Like, what the heck? Um, can we get this over with? Like, let's move along. Some of you, like, love it because you're, like, all over the aisles, and some of you are like, oh, my gosh, what are we doing? So why do we do that? Is it just, like, something that's like, well, churches do it, so we'll do it? See, the reason we have passing of the peace is because this is supposed to be a family that is open and welcoming to anyone Regardless of your baggage, your skin color, what you've been through, what you haven't done, what you have done, anything, doesn't matter. You walk in that door, you're greeted, you're loved, you're welcomed, you are invited to be a part of the family. That's why we do it. It's passing of that brotherly love. And so I have a challenge I'm going to give you right now, and it's a challenge that's going to start tonight, and it's going to never end, so that's exciting. Are you guys ready to take it up? Here's the challenge. I want to challenge every single person here that if you ever come back, so please come back. If you ever come back, I, don't, I want to challenge you not to leave at the end of the service for until at least five or ten minutes. But take five or ten minutes and talk to somebody that you've never had a substantial, conver- a substantial conversation with before. Because in order to love the family, you have to know the family. 
And what I don't mean is like, oh, wow, there's a new person. There's like a line of people waiting to meet the new person. They're like, whoa, this is real weird. That's not what I'm saying. So if you're new, that's not going to happen. Don't worry. But some of you have been here for months, for years, and you don't really know some other people in the church. Maybe a high and a bye, but you haven't really gotten to know them on a deeper level. Maybe some of you didn't know Noah very well, and he comes up here and he shares his story, and you know more about him. See, as a family, we have to know each other in order to love each other. So the challenge is get to know each other so we can be known as a place that has brotherly love. And the last little section on here, he says, have a humble mind, which essentially just means be humble, pure and simple, be humble. And this is important because humility is the bedrock of love and compassion. If you don't have humility, you can't be loving and you can't be compassionate. You have to have humility in order to see compassion and love flow out. And see, humility is something culturally that we actually like. Humility is a virtue. Uh, I think one of the reasons why, I think it probably is the reason, so many people uh, scorned and tore down and just couldn't stand LeBron James when he did the decision, though we loved it until he loved us, is he said, I'm taking my talents to South Beach, right? He came across as arrogant, as prideful. You know, this whole show about me and where I'm going, even though he raised a lot of money for charity. But we saw that, and, you know, some people, a lot of people don't like Miami, so that's one reason why they, you know, they didn't like LeBron. But it, it came across as arrogant. So it's like, oh, man, like, we don't like that. We, we want our celebrities and our athletes and our politicians to be humble. I think one of the reasons why Bernie Sanders has had such a following, you may completely disagree with his politics, and that's fine, but he came across as humble. People felt the burn, right? Because he, it seemed like he actually cared about other people. His policies, how he talked, he came across as humble. And so what happened was he attracted people because it's like, wow, a politician that cares for the everyday person and is thinking about them before he's thinking about himself. See, we want our athletes to take pay cuts so that they benefit the team. We want our politicians to be humble with the power and the position they've been given. We want our celebrities to give back and to be generous and to be humble and put other people first. We love like, when celebrities go meet with people in the hospital and we see those stories. We love that. It's a virtue that we desire. But I think the question is, we have to ask ourselves, we uphold humility as a virtue, but do we desire to see humility in our lives? Because I think if we're honest, we kind of assume that humility is something that you're supposed to have when you've gained much, right? So you accumulate a lot of power, now you need to be humble. You've accumulated a lot of money, now you need to be humble and generous. You've accumulated a lot of opportunity, you need to be humble. But see, for us mere mortals, who are just striving and grinding and trying to just advance our career and make it in life and get what we want out of life and get to where we think we need to go to be happy and satisfied and successful, humility can sometimes be a deterrent because humility means putting other people first. And we associate humility a little bit with weakness and we think to ourselves, if I'm going to get where I want to get in my career, if I want to fix this relationship that I'm in to try to make it how I want it to be, if I'm going to advance and be successful and find joy, I need to be strong. Which really just means I need to be about myself. I need to be prideful. I need to be a little bit selfish. And I need to make happen what I think 
needs to happen for me to find joy. So I think humility uh, is a little bit like coconut water. We all know it's good for us. None of us really know why. And it tastes really gross unless you drink a lot of it, and then eventually you have a choir taste. I still don't like coconut water at all. It doesn't make any sense to me. But see, the reason that I think we have this, this feeling of humility, like, yeah, I, I, I want to be humble, but man, like, that could be a deterrent to the things that I really want in life because I need to be strong. I need to be about myself is we have an inaccurate definition of humility. We, we don't really understand what humility is. The, the quote on the front cover of your worship program by C.S. Lewis, I think, is one of the greatest quick definitions of humility. He says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. So humility is not saying, I'm not good at anything. I'm not valuable. I'm inferior. Everybody else is better than me. That's not humility. That's actually pride, right? (laughs) Because the focus is on you. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Humility is not thinking of yourself first. It's putting someone else before you, thinking of them before you think of yourself. You know, I think humility has been something that has been a struggle. I'm a self-reliant person, and I struggle with pride, and humility is difficult for me, and to understand what it looks like uh, has been hard for me. I I went to Kenya some years back um, to Nairobi, and I was in the, the second largest slum there. It's called Makuru Slums, about 500,000, probably way more than that, people. And, and I, we went into there, and we went and met in some schools and did some presentations and spent time with the kids there. And I met this little boy. We spent the whole day together. It was like, it was an incredible day. So we're playing soccer together, and he spoke English. So we were able to talk, and I'm hearing about his life. We spent time praying together. It, it's just like this little eight-year-old, and he just was, he was such an awesome, awesome kid. So I know that the day is coming to an end and it's like, you know, the heartstrings when you're in those experiences, like now you're gonna have to say bye and you're never gonna see this kid again. So I'm saying bye to him and I was like, you know, thank you so much for spending time with me today. And uh, he says, I wanna give you something. And I'm like, what, like a high five or a hug? So he reaches to his neck and he starts to take off his necklace. It's a silver necklace. Not, it's not real silver, but a silver necklace. Most likely the, the nicest thing he has. And he takes off his necklace, and he says, I want you to have this. And I said, I, I can't take that. I, I, no, I, I don't have anything to give you. I mean, he said, no, 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 I want you to have this because I want you to remember me and our conversation. I want you to pray for me, and I want you to know that God is doing great things in Kenya. And I thought to myself, this eight-year-old just taught me about humility. <laughs> he thought about me instead of himself. He thought, I'm going to give him probably the nicest thing that I have so that he will get and understand the significance and the beauty of what's happening in this place, and he'll never forget it. He thought about me. And I was like, God, you are, you are convicting me. Um, but that was God's grace to me because I keep that necklace on my desk. So every single day I see that necklace and I know that I need to be thinking of other people before myself because um, that's humility. That is humility and it's difficult. So he says to us, Peter says, believer, Christian, who you are, you're to be compassionate, you're to be loving, but you're to be humble. 
And that is the bedrock of that. You are to think of other people before you think of yourself. And he fleshes it out. Look what he says. He's going to explain what humility looks like. He says, do not repay evil for evil, verse 9, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. He says, humility is putting other people first. So when you're attacked, when you're slandered, when you're reviled, when other people put you down, your response is humility. You put them first. You bless them, which is not easy to do. And he says, for, verse 10, whoever desires to love life and see good days. I, I, was, I sat on this for like a long time this week because I was like, what? He's, he's quoting Psalm 34 here, but I'm th- like, why is he quoting this? If you desire to love life and see good days, you see Peter is bringing up something that David said, you know, thousands of years before, that's something that we don't think he says, do you want to love your life and see good in the days of your life? And everyone's like, yeah, that'd be awesome. And his response is, be humble. See, we think that humility means that life is going to be not fun. It's a skewed belief of humility. If I'm humble, that means I'm not going to be able to do what I want to do. Therefore, my life will not be enjoyable. It'll be about everybody else and like, yeah, I'll feel good sometimes, but man, I want to like, do what I want to do. I want to get what I want to get out of life. And so if I want to love life and see good days, then I need to be about number one. And Peter is saying, just like David said, that it's actually the opposite, that humility actually brings about love of life and it brings about goodness in the days of your life. And so it gives you freedom to be different. It gives you freedom to be humble. And he goes on and he says, here's what you're able to do by being humble. You're able to let him keep his tongue from evil, to keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. In Psalm 34, which is quoted here, uh, David says a few other things that I think are really important for this conversation. He says, let the humble hear and be glad. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And he says, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So he's talking about humility. He's talking about seeking God and responding to God in humility. And he's saying, you will lack no good thing. You will love your life. You will taste and see the goodness of God. But, he says, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. See, he's reassuring you um, that there are going to be times in, the li- in your life where there is suffering. See, loving life and seeing good in the days of your life does not promise that there won't be suffering. It doesn't promise that there won't be hardship. It's saying that there will be something in there that's different that brings about goodness and love and joy and satisfaction like Noah was talking about that other things can't bring. And that in those times where you're feeling overlooked and you're feeling put down and you're feeling cast out, you're feeling trampled on and you're thinking, forget humility, forget compassion, forget love. I'm gonna start doing what's much easier to do, which is being prideful and selfish and hating and and just pushing and going the way that I wanna go. In those moments, remember, that the Lord is against those who do those things, but actually goodness and mercy and love and lacking of no good thing comes through humility, through endurance. Psalm 34 says two of my favorite things. He says in the same Psalm, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. Meaning in those times, 
He is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. May the afflictions, he says, of the righteous, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. When you're afflicted and you're tempted to say, I'm just gonna, you know, forget all of that. I'm gonna run after myself. Remember that the Lord is a deliverer and he delivers you out of your affliction. He's saying humility wins in the end. And he, he closes and he says this at the end. He says, now who is there to harm you if you're jealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. He's saying here, Humility wins personally, right? So humility wins by providing goodness and love of life in your days and lacking of no good thing, but humility also wins others. He's saying what happens is that humility brings about conversations, brings about awareness because you're different. And people are gonna come to you. The assumption here is that people are gonna come to you and they're gonna say, why are you treating me like this? Why are you responding like this? Why are you living like this? To where it gives you the opportunity, as he says, to be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. Uh, This is really important. So in other parts of scripture, we would see that there's a call for apologetics, which is meaning the defense of the faith. It's thinking about how to intelligently um, discuss and to work through issues that people have concerning uh, who God is in scripture. This is actually not talking about that. That's great. I I love to nerd out and read as many apologetic books as possible. Um, He's not talking about that. Apologetics are important. Reading and understanding the arguments. I think having an intelligent faith is very important. But he's talking here about be prepared to what? Give a defense. What does he say? For the hope that is in you. So he's saying, he's assuming something. He's saying that when you begin to live the way that God has called you to live, living humbly, compassionate and loving, people are going to recognize it and they're gonna ask you questions and you should be prepared to tell them what you believe, the hope that is in you. All the things that you've set your mind on before, that you are chosen by God, you are loved by God, as we've sung that Jesus loves you, you're a child of God, you have no reason to fear that you've been called to live differently and to be different because as Peter has been saying, you're an alien, meaning this is not your home. It's a temporary home. That you need to be prepared to share that when people ask and wonder what is up with you. He's essentially saying that humility will give you the opportunity to share the most humble person, which is Jesus Christ. And so he says, verse 18, right? He says, for Christ also suffered once for sin, for the righteous, for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You see, this is true humility. Jesus was reviled, he was beaten, he was mocked, he was humiliated, he was falsely accused. And you know what he did? He was silent. He endured. He was humble. On the cross, as he's dying, you know what he says? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. (laughs) That's humility. Peter is saying that as you seek to live out humility in your life, 
because you've acknowledged the most humble person, Jesus, and what he's done for you, it will give you opportunities to share him with others, that humility has won you and will give you the opportunity to share that with other people. And I think that is so important for us to wrap our minds around because what we're facing currently in our country is so hard. This last week has been tragic. It has been difficult. It has been filled with anger and with frustration and with confusion. It's created a firestorm of people that are arguing back and forth on on different sides and there's so much heartbreak wrapped up in it all and people are painting each different thing with one color and and, and people don't, we don't know what to do, right? Have you asked yourself that? Like, what do I do? How do I respond? See, here's what I know. I know that what's taking place is not God's heart. I know that it is breaking his heart and it should break our heart because what's happened is disrespect has come and trumped respect. Dishonor has replaced honor. Hate and violence has replaced love. And pride has trampled over humility. And that is not who we've been designed to be. That's not who we are. Made in the image of God to live out those things I want to read you a quote from a man that um, most of us think all of us would regard as humble, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Here's what he says. Violence never brings permanent peace. It solves no social problems. It merely creates new and more complicated ones. Violence is impractical because it is a descending spiral ending in destruction for all. It is immoral because it seeks to humiliate the opponent rather than win his understanding It seeks to annihilate rather than convert. Violence is immoral because it thrives on hatred rather than love. It destroys community and makes brotherhood impossible. It leaves society in monologue rather than dialogue. Violence ends up defeating itself. It creates bitterness in the survivors and brutality in the destroyers. I was reading this this week and I thought, I wonder if Martin Luther King Jr. was reading 1 Peter 3. (laughs) when he wrote that. Because what he's calling for and what he's saying is we are to be humble in the face of opposition, in the face of oppression, in the face of all of these troubles, take heart for Jesus has overcome the world and that gives us the ability to be humble because he was humble for us so we can live in light of that. So we can be compassionate people. We can be loving people. We can work at these things in the way that God has designed us to work at these things. So I think now more than ever, the church needs to be known as a collection of, of humble people who are compassionate of mind, meaning we listen, we empathize, we seek to understand how people feel instead of rush to judgment and opinion, that we seek to be compassionate by going out and loving and caring for people's needs and sacrificing our own comfort, and that we are to be humble in the way that we treat people and love people in the way that we respect people and that we are to create a place here in the church where anyone can come in regardless of what they've done or who they are or where they've been they come here and they feel loved and they feel welcomed and they feel like they're allowed and invited to be a part because that is the gospel And that is the kingdom of God. And that is our call as the church to be known in that way. In Psalm 34, it says, 
that Jesus is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. And so for all of us feeling like that, processing that individually, personally, corporately, Jesus is the remedy. He is the remedy for the things that are going on personally and in our world. And we need to be seeking to model that by seeking to live humbly the way he's designed us to be. But we have to go to him first and ask him to work in us by his spirit that that may be true of our church, true of us individually. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are gracious to us. You are good. You have worked in our lives and we don't deserve it, but we're thankful. We're so thankful for your goodness. God, we pray that we would honor you that we would seek to look at you and to taste your goodness and to trust you, that we would seek to be different by being humble so that people can come to see you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, we're gonna close our service tonight um, as we always do with an offering, um, with communion and offering, but I wanna do something um, because of what's taken place. Uh, I wanna... Uh, recite a prayer together as a church. Uh, This was written by a pastor up in Illinois. And uh, you all got this in your worship bulletin. If you don't have one with you, you can look on with someone next to you. I'm going to read this. And where it's bold, I want to ask you to to say that aloud. So, Lord, forgive us. We would all say together as a church. Um, This is written in light of um, what is taking place. And so for those of you that are also going to pray, um, I'd like you to come up here, please. And you can use this mic right here. They're going to pray through the parts in the middle. And then we're going to close together corporately. And then we're going to come to the table um, to taste and see the Lord's goodness. But um, take this in and let this be our prayer as a church together. Let's pray. For the times we have been too distracted to feel deeply and respond fully to justice. O Lord, forgive us. For the times our own hearts fill with hatred and malice for those who inflict pain. O Lord, forgive us. For the times we have failed to feel fully the breaking of our own heart. O Lord, forgive us. For the ways we have not invited you into our own suffering. O Lord, forgive us. For the ways we have caused you and others pain, O Lord, forgive us. God of comfort, grant us peace. Our hearts are broken, our souls heavy. Our sorrow is a weight around our necks, sinking our feet deep into the mire of despair. Deliver those buried this moment under a burden of misery. God of justice, grant us hope. We proclaim that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Yet we confess that the sin and brokenness we see around us is a bitter reminder of a kingdom not yet fully come. May we be agents of your justice in every crack and crevice of our lives. God of power, grant us strength. We know that the same force that spoke the universe into existence is alive in each of us. Yet our spirits are so very weary. How long, O Lord, must communities be torn and fractured by senseless violence? How we are desperate for your vitality and courage.
God of passion, grant us wisdom. We are a tangle of emotions from rage to anguish. We long for your Holy Spirit to guide our hearts to right responses. May our hearts break for the things that break yours. May we be filled with anger that submits to your supremacy. May we find the wisdom necessary to align passions with yours in order to navigate these brutal waters. God of redemption, grant us life. You alone, O God, are the source of life. Yet our narratives bleed crimson with brutality and death. We need new songs whispered into our ears, new rhythms to pound in our chests so that we may join in the chorus of new life. God of love, you open our eyes to the suffering all around us, and we will see. God of justice, you open our ears to those who cry out in pain, and we will hear. God of healing, you open our hearts to expose our own pain and the pain of the world, and we will bear it together. Amen.